It's good to be here today. I believe the Holy Spirit is trying to get a message across because I didn't talk to Pastor Ron today about my message. Uh, I didn't talk to Benji about my message, and he was talking about being filled with the Spirit, and Pastor Ron was talking about waiting and living our life with an expectation of the Lord's return and living a life purposely set out for that. And I started to think about a few days ago, really last night too as well, why am I here? Why are you here? Why are you here today? And the reason why I'm here today is because I love Jesus. And it's because I love his people. And so I really want you to check your heart and your motives of why you're in a relationship with Christ. Because the Lord already knows our hearts and our motives. He knows our mind and he knows our thoughts before we even have them. So when we think about our motives, and I'm going to talk about the marriage of Christ, but we have to understand what it means to be in a true relationship and what it means to have a true love. And it's the love of Christ that compels me to really speak this message today. And so when you evaluate your motives of why you come to church, why I have a relationship with Christ, it started to remind me, and I started to think about before I was a Christian, the motives I used to have when I got in relationships. And the motives, why? Me and Hallie started dating when I was 14 years old, or she was 14, I was 16. Um, This is before we were really living for the Lord. And, you know, you start to, you start to, this relationship out and you start to really, you don't understand what love is. You really don't. And with our own relationships with Christ, if we don't understand what true love is, our relationship will not be pure in His sight and our devotion to Him will not be pure either. And so I started to think about Man, I would get in a relationship with her when I was younger, and I really, man, I'd get all excited, and I wanted to just love her. I I didn't know how to, but I wanted to. And, you know, you get excited, and your emotions get up, and then you start this relationship, and then the emotions kind of go away. And something looks better on the other side, and so you start to run this way and that way. And it's the same thing a lot of times what we do in our relationship with Christ. We can come to church. We can go to a teen camp. We can get our emotions and everything. Ah, you know, our emotion, we get so excited. It pumps us up. Worship, yeah. And we're like, man, I'm going to dedicate my life. I'm going to do this relationship with Christ. And then two weeks goes, and you get back into the, the world and back into life, and you realize your feelings kind of changed. That honeymoon stage is over, Right? And then you really start to realize that a relationship and true love goes way beyond emotion and way beyond feelings. Because in a true marriage, if your love and your relationship is based off your feelings and how you feel to each other, it's not going to last. It's not going to last. And it's the same thing with our relationship with Christ. What is our motive? Some people come to Christ and say, man, I'm going to dedicate my life to Christ because I don't want to go to hell. It's not for Christ, but it's because I don't want judgment. I don't want to go to hell. Or I want the blessings. I want the things. You know, I want heaven, yeah. Well, ask yourself that question. Who wouldn't say that? Hmm, would you like to go into a burning house or stay in a mansion? Sure. Right? I want to stay in the mansion. Here, say this prayer. Say this prayer. Oh, I just dedicated my life to the Lord. No, you didn't. No, you didn't. 
Did you know we can lust after things of Christ just like we lust after something in somebody else? Imagine telling your, your wife, oh, well, the only reason why I married you is because of your financial security or your husband. Really? Well, Christ, that's why I got in my relationship with you is because the eternal security. It's not because my love towards you. But then you'll see this played out in your relationship with Christ. Because then you come to church and it's not the love of Christ that compels everything you do. And so that way when you go back into the world, you get taken over really easy. Because that devotion and that true love of Christ is not the one thing that drives you. It's not the one thing that commands you. You don't understand that covenant, that promise, that commitment that should go a lot farther than your emotion. That should go a lot farther than the benefits. It should go a lot farther with the emotions. Now, all of that stuff, guys, when we get into a marriage with Christ in a marriage period, comes with it, right? That outflows the emotion. Man, I love her. Man, oh, man, it's just I love Jesus. You know, that excitement, that security, hallelujah. Man, when you serve the Lord, the blessings do come. Yes, we get eternity. But the thing is, is do we love him because of him? Is it Christ alone or do we love the blessings? Because if Christ wasn't in heaven, would you still want to go there? See, I, I'm saying this because we have to understand what pure love is from the heart and what a pure dedication and a pure relationship with Christ is before we can really understand how we're married to him and how we're betrothed to him, as the scripture says. Pastor's talking about Christ is coming back. He is, and I'm going to relay that within these scriptures and within this message. When you dedicate your life to Christ, when it's a true conversion and you truly come to the Lord and you're broken and you need Jesus. How many of you know you, I need Jesus? I want Jesus. I need him. I can't, like, that's the most love that I have for anyone in the world is for Jesus. I need Jesus. I need him. That... That holds up when your life's not going well. Because when you come to Christ with these preconceived notions, well, I want the blessings, and then all of a sudden you start realizing and you live in this life, and then the warfare comes, and then you got to deny yourself, pick up your cross, and then that gets, hold up, man, I didn't sign up for that. I thought this marriage was just going to be happy, happy, happy. I didn't sign up for the, the hard part. Then you didn't sign up for a true marriage, and your life was really never truly committed to that person. And that's where it is, even in our relationship with Christ. And that's why I have to start off with this, because do we realize that we are the bride of Christ? That we are betrothed to the Lord. And we see that within the scriptures. The word betrothed is actually a term that we use called engagement. You see, but in the Jewish culture, we have to understand something. And I'm going to show you that we're actually betrothed to him the word betrothal when we see this in Hosea 2:19 if you understand the 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 meaning in the story of Hosea a righteous prophet was told to marry a harlot a prostitute who is cheating on him it was just like if any if god told you to do something like that we'd be like what no you know what i mean absolutely not but it says right here in Hosea 19, or Hosea 2, 19 and 20, I will betroth you to me forever, 
Yes, I will betroth you to me in righteousness and justice and loving kindness and mercy. The Lord is going to betroth us to him. We are betrothed to Christ. Through what? Through his mercy? Through the righteousness of Christ? When we come into this real relationship with Christ, in the Jewish tradition, the word betrothal, that engagement, it's not like our engagements here today because our engagements shoot. You can, our, even our marriage is not the, the marriage that we talk about. Two homosexuals get married. That don't mean you're married. Not in God's eyes. It's the same thing with betrothal, our engagement. Today in our engagement, you can break off an engagement. It, it's like that, right? Well, we broke off our engagement. But in the Jewish culture, in the Jewish tradition, a betrothal was a legal standing. You had all the legal rights as a wife and a husband, legally bound and to break up a betrothal in the Hebrew era, in that Jewish culture, you actually need a certificate of divorce to break up that betrothal. It wasn't consummated yet. They didn't come back together. And so this betrothal process, and this is where we're going to get into, Paul talks about it as well. I'm just going to hit it real quick in 2 Corinthians 11, 2 through 4. Eleven two 2 through 4, he says, For I am jealous for you. This is Paul talking to the church of Corinth. For I am jealous for you with godly jealousy, for I have betrothed you to one husband, that I may present you as a chaste virgin to Christ. Pure, holy, blameless. We'll talk about that a little bit later. But Paul was jealous for them because he presented him to one husband. Who was that husband, church? Jesus Christ. He's betrothed you to one husband. You see, during this betrothal, this engagement time period, it usually would last about a year, all right? And then during this betrothal, what the groom would do, he would go back to his father's house, and he would be, be, be preparing a room for his spouse because in that tradition, they got married so young, right? And so the groom would go away and start preparing a room onto a house. Does this sound familiar? And then he would go back and get his virgin. Wait a minute. I've heard this story before. Have we heard this story? In John, let's look at this real quick. In John 14, 1 through 4. And this is probably why Jesus used this illustration. John 14, 1 through 4. He's leaving, right? He says, but let not your heart be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you, I go prepare a place for you. And I go and prepare a place for you, and I will come again and receive you to myself. That's where I am, that you may be also. He had to go away and prepare a place. But he's coming back, right? And that's what this groom was doing. And this kind of gives us an understanding into the next parable in which I'm going to lead you into. Because see, they had to go away. This groom was preparing a place, and he was coming back. This word mansions, we always think like mansions, you know? It's actually not that great in the context of this verse. When you see the Greek word is minnow, it actually stands for an abode. MacArthur, the, the translation that he likes to use is a dwelling place. It was just a place where we will stay with our groom. 
It's not a literal mansion in which that we like to picture, but we understand what heaven's going to be when it talks about streets of gold. That's pretty awesome, right? But in the scope of eternity, gold is like nothing. It's dirt. It doesn't matter, right? So we start to see this illustration, and it says he's going to go and he'll return to us. This gives me another parable that comes to mind of Matthew 25. Let's go to Matthew 25, 1 through 13. Matthew 25, 1 through 13. And we've heard this parable before. It's about the foolish virgins and the wise virgins, right? So this bridegroom, Jesus says he's going to prepare a place, but he's coming back. And then all of a sudden there's a parable about these virgins. It starts to put all of this stuff in a context. There was 10 of them total for the kingdom of God. I'm going to start there. Then the kingdom of heaven shall be likened to 10 virgins who took their lamps and went out to meet the bridegroom. Now five of them were wise and five were foolish. Those who were foolish took their lamps and took no oil with them. But the wise took oil in their vessels with their lamps. But while the bridegroom was delayed, they all slumbered and slept. And at midnight a cry was heard, Behold, the bridegroom is coming. Go out to meet him. Then all those virgins arose, trimmed their lamps, and the foolish said to the wise, Hey, give us some of your oil, for our lamps are going out. But the wise answered, saying, No, lest there should be not enough for us and you. But go rather to those who sell and buy for yourselves. And while they went to buy, the bridegroom came, and those who were ready went with him to the wedding. And, to the, and then the door was shut. Afterward... The other virgins came also, saying, Lord, Lord, open to us. But he answered and said, Assuredly, I say to you, I don't know you. Watch, therefore, for you know neither the day nor the hour, and the Son of Man is coming. Watch, therefore. Pastor Ron was just talking about that. We don't know when the Lord's going to return. But you see, are we going to be the wise virgins? The ones who are prepared? Ones who are ready? Waiting for our bride or the groom to come back so we can answer that call and be ready for the Lord. The illustration used in the Old Testament a lot of times with the oil was the Holy Spirit. Isn't it funny that we need to be filled? That lamp better be filled with the Holy Spirit because if not, it's empty. And then when he comes, you're not ready. That's why we have to prepare. That's the wise virgins and the foolish virgins. There's going to come a time when the door shut, folks. If you're not ready, he, what does he say? They're knocking on the door. Now they're trying to come in. It's too late. He says, I don't even know you. Because I promise you this, the true bride knew her groom. If you were waiting for your, your groom to come and you're in this house and you're waiting, he's preparing a place and he says, I'm coming back for you. You know, girl, look, when you're in love, you're like looking out the window right? When that first day is coming, like, is he coming? You know, but don't make him wait. Don't make Jesus wait. Sometimes they like to make us wait, right? <laughs> but we ain't making Jesus wait. And it was awesome because after I do this sermon, I go to Hallie's house, I pull up and she comes running out the door to greet me last night. And I'm like, man, if that's not an illustration, Right after I do, you know, you leave, I've just got done praying and preparing the sermon. I come up to her house and she's like, comes out the house. And I'm like, that was a perfect illustration. Your groom is coming. 
She came to meet me. She was ready. She was ready. And that's how we need to be with Christ. We always need to be ready because we don't know when the day is going to come when he's going to return. We see that Paul in 2 Corinthians 11, 2 through 4, that he wanted to present them a virgin. Clean. In Jewish tradition, when you start looking at the Old Testament, if someone was a virgin, it's kind of hard for us to wrap our minds about this, but virginity was huge, and it still should be. We should be virgins until we're married. That is something that God has created for a purpose and for a reason for us to unite with one another. If you're not married, you shouldn't be doing anything like that in, in any of that sort, okay? And if you have, the Lord will forgive you. He can forgive you if we repent and get right with God. That's not an unforgivable sin. But the truth of the matter is, is we are to be young ladies, young men, should be holding that virginity for that time with your, your groom or your bride. That should be a holy time, a time of consummation. So we understand that he wanted to present, Paul wanted to present the church as a virgin to Christ. And he was jealous. Fathers, you know that probably of your daughters, right? Y'all want to protect that. That's something that we should all want. We start to see in Ephesians 5. I'm going to go to Ephesians 5 so we can get a, an understanding about being without spot or wrinkle, without any blemishes when Christ comes back. Ephesians 5, 25 through 7. Husbands, love your wives just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for her that he might sanctify and cleanse her with the washing of water by the word, and that he might present her to himself, a glorious church, not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she should be holy and without blemish. You see what Christ has done to purify us? That's why Christ died, to purify us. It's only through the blood of Christ can we be washed and can we be made holy. And that's why it needed to be shed out. And that's why he's saying, husbands, love your wives. Lay down your life for your wife. Lay down your life for your wife like Christ has laid down his life for you. And that's in the aspect of how we're to be made holy. It's through that blood of Christ. It's through that that we are made spotless. And the Lord says he did that so when he comes back, he has a holy bride. A spotless bride. That is a beautiful thing to be washed clean. It's a beautiful thing when you come into a relationship in a marriage with Christ and you come and you commit your life and you realize that you've been forgiven, that you've been cleansed, that you've been washed, that you've been sanctified. That right there should make you want to scream hallelujah if you've ever experienced that. If you've never experienced that, then you're kind of still sitting there in your rut. You're still sitting there in your sin. You're still sitting there looking for a hope or an expectation, and Christ is that hope, and he is that expectation, and he can still forgive you today. That's the beauty. It's not too late. I go right here into this, this next instance. It's in Revelations 19, through 6, or 19, 6 through 9, where it talks about the wife of the lamb. She made herself ready. The wife of the Lamb, she made herself ready in Revelations 19, 6 
through 9, it says, And I heard, as it were, the voice of a great multitude, as the sound of many waters, and the sound of the mighty thundering, saying, Hallelujah, for the Lord God omnipotent reigns. Let us be glad and rejoice and give him glory, for the marriage of the Lamb has come. And his wife has made herself ready. And to her it was granted to be arrayed in fine linen, clean and bright, for the fine linen in righteous acts of the saints. In righteous acts of the saints. We see this in the marriage supper. I'm going to go to another parable of the marriage supper, but it says in this scripture right here, blessed are those who've accepted the invitation to this supper. Right? And it talks about how the wife made herself ready, and you think about, it talks about the righteous acts of the saint. Me as a groom, we were doing street ministry this Friday, and we were on Central, and we were preaching the gospel, and we were cooking and handing out food and different things like that. And there was drunkards, adulterers, transvestites, everything you can imagine on the street, and we're preaching the word, praying with them. And as a groom, I've seen my soon-to-be bride in the middle of these people, praying with them, hugging them, wrapping her arms around transvestites, dirty people who were drunk, laying in ditches. And as a groom, as that's my wife-to-be, the excitement in my heart that I had that my bride was in the ditches with these people who need the love of Christ. With these people who are, with, when most people, if they walked in the room, we wouldn't even say to them, oh, look, we go to the other side of the street. There's someone who's dirty. Oh, a transvestite. That's gross. Like their sin is any different than yours was? Maybe it wasn't as out loud, right? The Bible says whether you're an adulterer or a liar, Right? So many times in our society, we place them like this. Well, thank God I'm not like them. I'm not a drunkard, right? Why? Because they have an outward sin that makes them look worse to everybody else. When we go into this next parable, let's see who didn't accept the invitation to the marriage supper. It wasn't the transvestites that Jesus told them in that parable. When pastor was talking about it, it's so easy to get wrapped up in things. Yes, it is. It is so easy just to get too busy for Jesus. Right? Because we allow the things of this world just to pull us away. And they could be good things. Let's see what kept these people out of the supper when we turn to Luke 14. And pastor's actually going to go over this probably in the next, you guys are on chapter 13, right? So you guys are going to hear this again. Might be for a reason. Luke 15 through 24. Now, when one of those who sat at the table with him heard these things, he said to him, Blessed is he who shall eat the bread of the kingdom of God. Then he said to him, A certain man gave a great supper and invited many. And he sent his servants out at supper time to say to those who were invited, come for all the things are now ready. But they all with one accord began to make excuses. Mm. The first said to him, 
I've bought a piece of ground and I must go and see it. I asked you if you could have me excused. And another one said, but I bought five yoke of oxen and I'm going to test them. I asked you to have me excused. Still another one said, but I've married a wife and therefore I can't come. Sorry, my wife won't let me. So then the servant came and reported these things to his master. Then the master of the house began to be angry. And he said to his servant, go out quickly into the streets and the lanes of the city and bring in here the poor, the maimed, and the lame, and the blind. And the servant said, Master, it is done as you commanded. And still there was still room. Then the master said to the servant, go out into the highways and the hedges and compel them to come and that my house may be filled. For I say to you that none of those men who were invited shall taste my supper. You see, Christ calls us to go out as his servants and invite people into this marriage supper that we are going to have. To eat at his table, to taste the goodness of God, to come experience Christ. And we're out there preaching the gospel. And you know what's weird? The people, well, I bought some land. I got I to go do this, Jesus. I can't come spend time with you right now. I can't come eat. I can't come eat at your table. But I have too much work to do. Or I'm married, so my kids need more of my time than Jesus does. And we reject spending time with Christ coming to eat at his table for things that are temporal. Now, all of those things are important in the context of what they are, right? Because the Bible says if you don't provide for your wife, you're worse than an unbeliever. So we need to provide for our families, yes. But do we put them over the invitation of the supper of Christ? If we do, we're wrong. And I started to think about that. (laughs) Look, every single one of them needed to be invited to the supper. Every single one of them needed to eat at the table. He's like, go to them. Go to the streets. Go to the hedges. Go to the wicked, the poor, the blind, the maim. Every single one of us in here need to eat at the table of Jesus Christ. It don't matter if you're a king. It don't matter if you got all the riches in the world. Or if you're a poor transvestite on Central. You need Jesus. Because I'll tell you right now, none of that stuff's going to get you into the supper. He says those people that denied the invitation to come will not eat. So if Christ is calling us to do something, we deny that invitation. We deny that. Billy Graham said the cross demands a change in that message we watched last week. When we meet Jesus, that should demand a change in our lives. And when we get to eat of that supper, when we realize when life gets us busy, and I know I've been there, but when life gets us busy, and we, you know what, we lay that stuff down, and you're like, you know what, I'm going to go spend time with Christ, and you get to taste and see how good that is, and you compare the two, I, I held on to this instead of this. I'd rather eat crumbs on a floor with the dogs than eat great steak with my master. How many of us have ever been there? Like we put some before God and then we give our lives to Christ and I'm like, what? I was holding on to trash when you were trying to give me gold, right? The Lord has more for you than you could ever imagine. And he tells you just to repent of that stuff that you have. Turn away from that life and come see what I'm going to give you. Life more abundantly. 
And when you experience that, that's what keeps us from turning back. But if we go back and we go back to live in that, he says, you're worst. You're like a dog who returns to his vomit. In the scope of reality, if we truly see what Christ has and we turn back to our sin, is that, I think that's worse than vomit. Right? There's probably not a word in our English dictionary that makes that up compared to what Christ has at his table for what we choose a lot of times. I go back to Hosea just to really talk about that picture. When you start to see who these people were, and really God wanted Hosea to experience what he's gone through with his people. Hosea 3, it says, Then the Lord said to me, Go again and love a woman who's loved by a a lover and is committing adultery, just like the love of the Lord for the children of Israel who took other gods and loved the raisin cakes of the pagans. The love that Christ has for us, the love that what God has for the children of Israel, we are his people. If you're a part of the church, you are his people, and Christ loves you. And a love that we can really not explain. But when we choose other things over him, we commit adultery. It's harlotry. It really is. When we choose our sin or our way over God's way, we're really committing adultery against our bridegroom. And when we see that, we see a picture of his heart right here. It broke the heart of God. But he shows his love for us, like Pastor said, while we were still sinners. He died for us. That blows my mind. Because we know when somebody commits adultery in real life, we're like, want to put him, put him to death. Right? But we see Christ's love in this story that goes way beyond our human love and what we can even imagine. That he says, go back and take her. Even though she's in adultery, go back and take her. And that's the beauty about this entire story in Hosea. But it breaks the heart of God. We see this in another instance and in another story as we wrap this up. King David was a great man, godly man. In the scriptures it says that he was a man after God's own heart, right? And he committed adultery against God. He committed adultery against his wife. And he held on to this thing, and he thought he covered it up, but God sent a prophet his way. That's what blows my mind. So many times, and we talked about this in the men's Bible study, about, you know, when we have this sin in our life, and we're like, we know we're guilty, and instead of just coming to God who knows what you're holding on to, who just wants to forgive you and restore you and make we right, we like try to hide it from others as if God doesn't see it. You know what I mean? And then so like when we come to church or when we come to our presence, like, and I've been there, so... You know, when you know you're holding on to something God doesn't want you to have, and then you see somebody who's on fire for the Lord. We were talking about this in the men's group. You're, like, trying to avoid them with everything you have. You know what I mean? You're like, oh, there he is. You know? Like, there's Pastor. We were talking about that. Don't look into Pastor Ron's eyes. He's going to know. You know? And it's so funny because we do. Right? Like, God doesn't see it. And then God sends a prophet. This is the beautiful thing about the heart of David. God sends a prophet his way, and he says, you're guilty. 
And this is the heart of a truly broken man. God, he just said it, and we're going to read it. That's why I'm like, I didn't even talk to him, and the Lord's bringing this out. But see, that's the thing, is when the prophet came and he says, you're guilty, did David say, whoa, 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 we're not supposed to judge. Who are you to tell me, prophet Nathan, that I'm wrong? Is that what he said? Is that what he said? If we're caught in sin, we're trying to cover it up, and the Lord sends a holy man to rebuke you? What was David's response? He was broken, and he fell at his feet. He says, I sinned against God and God alone. That's a heart of God, folks. It's not about, you know, if we're caught up in this sin, we try to hide it. It is if we're caught up in the sin and the Holy Spirit convicts us, we should be broken and repentant before God. That's the most loving thing that God could do when you're caught up in sin is to send a prophet your way to rebuke you. Most people don't understand that. What do you mean that concept of love? We don't understand that concept of love. That's why when the love of God is preached or when the grace of God is preached, like pastor's saying, we kind of use it like a rug. Oh, Jesus loves me. I can live however we want. That's not love, folks. Tell your wife that. See how that works out. Baby, I love you. I know you're always going to love me, right? We made the commitment. So I get to cheat on you however I want? Absolutely not. Well, you'd be foolish, right? So what makes you think we can do that to God? And so when the Lord and the Holy Spirit spoke to David and he convicted him, this is the beautiful thing. Because in the Old Testament law, in David's guilt, and in David's shame, it was death. There was no grace back then outside of that concept. When it was a, a sin of that grievance, it wasn't a negligent sin. It was a, a complete disobedience against God. The, the penalty was to be stoned to death. But God told Nathan to tell him, don't worry, you won't die. God showed mercy. God showed grace. You see, and that's what us in our own lives, guys, when we see sin and what we've done in God's eyes, we deserve death. We deserve hell. And he's like, don't worry, you won't die. I sent my son. I've sent grace. I've sent mercy. And we realize what we deserve when, when we truly, in our hearts and minds, see what we deserve, and then we see his grace and mercy, it puts that in a right perspective. <sighs> you did that for me. For me? Paul says, I'm one of the worst of sinners. He used to persecute Christians, and you did that for me? That's when one of the most beautiful psalms in the psalms was written. Psalms 51. It was by a man who was broken. It was by a man who was humbled. And it was by a man who repented before the Lord. He didn't point a finger at Bathsheba. He didn't point a finger. She shouldn't have been bathing on the rooftop. So many times we do that, huh? We get caught up. She shouldn't have been looking at me like that. Right? That's not brokenness, folks. If the Lord has his finger on something in your life, let this be our heart's cry. We're gonna, I'm going to read this scripture as we close. Because this should be the heart of somebody who truly understands the grace of God. 
when the Lord starts to convict something in my life, I remember when I first gave my life to the Lord, it was like, I felt like every scripture I read, it was like that, pointing at me, you know, like that. And man, you start to walk good with God, you start to do well with God, and then all of a sudden you start thinking you're good, right? And then I turned a page and it was like that, and I'm like, gosh, am I ever going to get it, right? But it, that's his process of him purifying you, him purging you. Those he loves, he disciplines. And so because he loves you, he's going to discipline you because he wants to make us pure and holy. He wants us to be a ready bride for his return. That's the beautiful thing. Don't, desti- don't despise the conviction of the Lord. It's a beautiful thing. It's a dangerous thing when you don't feel conviction because that means your heart is hardened. And that's what he says about in Hebrews when they didn't enter in because of the unbelief, because of their disobedience, their heart was completely hardened to the things of God. And David was a man after God's own heart because he was a broken and contrite man before the Lord. And we see that in Psalms 51. He says, have mercy upon me, O God, according to your loving kindness, according to the multitude of your tender mercies, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I acknowledged my transgressions. I've acknowledged his transgressions. That's the thing. He acknowledged them. He didn't hide them. He acknowledged them. And he said, and my sin was always before me. He says, against you, Lord, and you only have I sinned and done this evil thing in your sight, that you may be found just when you speak and blameless when you judge. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin my mother conceived me. Behold, you desire the truth in the inward parts, and in the hidden part you will make me to know wisdom. Purge me with hyssop, and I shall be clean. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. Make me hear joy and gladness, that the bones you have broken may rejoice. Hide your face from my sins, and blot out all my iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, O God. And renew a steadfast spirit within me. Do not cast me away from your presence. And do not take your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation. And uphold me by your generous spirit. Then I will teach transgressors your ways. And sinners shall be converted to you. Deliver me from the guilt of bloodshed, O God. The God of my salvation. And my tongue shall sing aloud of your righteousness. O Lord, open my lips and my mouth shall show forth your praise. For you do not desire sacrifice or else I would have given it. You do not delight in burnt offerings. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit and a broken and contrite heart. These, O God, you will not despise. Do good in your good pleasure to Zion. Build the walls of Jerusalem. Then you shall be pleased with the sacrifices of righteousness, with burnt offerings and whole burnt offering, that your that they shall offer bulls on your altar. I, I see that restore to me the joy of my salvation. It, when we're caught in that sin, we don't have that joy. We don't have that, that peace within us that we long for. And it's hard because we live a life of contradiction because we want to experience joy, we want to experience peace, but the things we have that we're holding on to prevent us from that, it prevents us from that. And so we come to church and we're angry, we're bitter, we don't get it. And then pastor's talking about the joy of the Lord. We got Benji up there singing, talking about freedom and cleansing and power over authority. And you're like, I don't feel any of that. What is that? 
And that's why when you have that sin in your life, when the God's trying to convict that, he wants to restore that, guys. He wants to restore that joy. He wants to restore that peace within you. He wants to restore a right spirit within you. That's the beauty. And he says, after he's clean, though your sin be like crimson red, he washes it white as snow. And after he's cleansed, you notice that? David says, I'll tell transgressors. I'll teach them your ways. And if we've been cleansed and we've been forgiven, then we need to start preaching to others and teaching them about how God can cleanse them and purify them. And if there's something in our life today that we need to repent of, then we need to get right with God so we can be brought back into that right relationship with him. If you don't have a right relationship with him, you won't want to spend time with him. I always find it fascinating that pastors or preachers will get up here and beg people to read five, just five minutes a day. Pray just five minutes a day. When you're in love, does somebody, ain't nobody got to tell me to go hang out with Hallie. Because I love her. I want to spend time with her. We're together all the time. Like, I love her. You don't have to beg me to do that. And when you're in love with Christ, no one will have to beg you to do that. When you experience the pure love, you're going to want to spend time with him. You're going to want to spend time in his presence. And that's the beauty, guys. That's the life of peace. And if you haven't experienced that, the Lord wants to give it to you. He does. He wants you to know him in that way, in a deeper way than ever before. If you love Christ already, he wants to take you deeper. There's never a point where we can stand up here and say, we made it. Not until the groom returns and we're united with our bride and we're eating at that supper. I want to be ready.